This is Space Time Series 26, Episode 8, for broadcast on the 18th of January 2023. Coming up on Space Time, discovering the origins of the solar wind, the growing violence of the sun as we move into Solar Cycle 25, and finding one of the Milky Way's oldest stars. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. Scientists with NASA's Parker Solar Probe mission have uncovered significant new evidence about the origins of the solar wind. That continual stream of charged particles flowing out from the sun, which bathes the Earth and other planets, and fills the solar system. The new observations from Parker Solar Probe, supported by other spacecraft as well as ground-based observations, are all pointing towards the solar wind being largely fueled by small-scale jets or jetlets which populate the base of the corona, the sun's upper atmosphere. The new findings are reported in the Astrophysical Journal and on the pre-pressed physics website archive.org are helping scientists better understand the 60-year-old mystery of what heats and accelerates the solar wind. Put simply, the new data shows astronomers how the solar wind gets going at its source. The observations are showing scientists how the solar wind rises from tiny jets of million-degree plasma, which populate the base of the corona. These findings will have a huge impact on science's understanding of the heating and acceleration of the corona and the solar wind plasma. Understanding the solar wind is fundamental to science's understanding of our solar system, and it's the primary science goal of the Parker Solar Probe mission. Made of electrons, protons and heavy ions, the solar wind courses through the solar system at some 1.6 million kilometres per hour. And as it travels outwards, the wind interacts with all objects in the solar system. In the case of the Earth, it interacts with our magnetic field, making it wobble like a plate of jello. It creates stunning auroral activity, which we see as the northern and southern lights, the aurora borealis and aurora australis. But if it gets strong enough, it can begin to cause problems with navigation and communication systems. Over time, the solar wind and stellar winds in other solar systems can also affect the composition evolution of planetary atmospheres, even influencing planetary habitability. At Earth, the solar wind is usually just a constant breeze. And so scientists have therefore been looking for a steady source of the sun that could continually power the solar wind. However, the new findings show the solar wind might be largely energised and fueled by these individual jetlets that are intermittently erupting into the lower part of the corona. Though each jetlet's relatively small, just a few hundred kilometres long, their collective energy and mass might well be enough to create the solar wind. One of the study's authors, Craig DeForest from the Southwest Research Institute in San Antonio, Texas, says the result implies that essentially all of the solar wind is likely released intermittently, becoming a steady flow in much the same way that individual hand-clapping sounds in a stadium or auditorium become a steady roar as the audience applauds. And it changes the paradigm of what scientists think about certain aspects of the solar wind. These jetlets, which were first observed more than a decade ago, are known to be caused by a process called magnetic reconnection. 
This occurs as magnetic field lines become entangled and explosively realign. Magnetic reconnection is a common process in charged gases called plasmas, and it's found right across the universe, from the Sun to near-Earth space and even around black holes. So, in the solar corona, magnetic reconnection creates these short-lived jets of plasma, and they pass energy and material into the upper corona, from where it then flows outwards across the solar system as the solar wind. To study these jetlets and magnetic fields, scientists primarily used observations from NASA's Solar Dynamics Observatory spacecraft as well as the NASA NOAA-GOES-R spacecraft, which is fitted with a solar ultraviolet imager instrument. And they also studied it from the ground, using high-resolution magnetic field data from the Goody Solar Telescope at the Big Bear Solar Observatory in California. The whole study was driven by a phenomena first observed by Parker Solar Probe known as switchbacks, magnetic zigzag structures in the solar wind. The combination of observations from many different vantage points, along with the high resolution of those views and Parker Solar Probe's close-up observations, helped scientists understand the collective behaviour of the jetlets. Previously, scientists simply couldn't detect enough of these events to adequately explain the observed amount of mass and energy that was streaming from the sun and the solar wind. But the improved resolution of the observations and the meticulous data processing enabled the new findings. The observations showed that jetlets are present all through the lower solar atmosphere, right across the entire sun. This makes them a tenable driver for the constant solar wind as opposed to other phenomena that wax and wane with the 11-year cycle of solar activity, such as solar flares and coronal mass ejections. Furthermore, the authors calculated that the energy and mass produced by the jetlets could easily provide most if not all of the amount of energy and mass seen in the solar wind. The solar wind was first proposed back in the 1950s by visionary scientist Eugene Parker, whom the Parker Solar Probe spacecraft is named after. In 1988, Parker proposed that the corona could be heated by nanoflares, tiny explosions on the solar atmosphere. Parker's theory eventually became the leading candidate to explain the heating and acceleration of the solar wind. The tiny magnetic reconnection events now being observed are, in a sense, exactly what Eugene Parker had proposed more than three decades ago. This report from NASA TV. The Sun. It's our solar system's engine and the only star in the sky that gets our attention every day. But up close, it's unlike anything we can see from Earth. It's ferocious, a writhing mass of nuclear chaos, tangled magnetic lines, and a constant wind with inconceivably high temperatures and speeds close to a million miles an hour. Over the years, NASA has sent probes all over the solar system, but never to the sun. Check this out. Parker Solar Probe, and it's humanity's first mission assigned to touch the sun. It will fly to within 4 million miles of the sun's surface, confronting brutal radiation and temperatures that can reach 1 million degrees Fahrenheit. Parker Solar Probe has been prepped to fly right through that unforgiving atmosphere. It's a rough journey. Typically, if you want to head out into the solar system, you've got to merge with orbital traffic. But if you want to head out into the center of the solar system, you've got to run the other way and it takes a lot of energy. 
The spacecraft has got to take the heat. Bathed in radiation as it swoops close, Parker Solar Probe used an advanced carbon-carbon composite heat shield to protect its delicate instruments. Here's the technical triumph. The spacecraft's thermal regulation system used just a single gallon of ordinary water, H2O, to collect and then dissipate heat, just like a car radiator. It fly into the corona, the super hot region of gas and plasma surrounding the sun. There's hardly a there there as high energy particles fly outward like streamers. But, and this is another weird thing about the sun, the corona is hotter than the surface of the star itself. We have a few good theories about this, but we're really not sure why. There's some process in the atmosphere that keeps heating it up the further it gets from the core. And Parker Solar Probe is really gonna try and figure it out. The corona also propels the solar wind out into space at incredible speeds, way beyond the orbit of Pluto. No one knows for sure what accelerates it so far, so fast. Parker Solar Probe lie right through the origin of this wind, right to where it starts to figure out how the whole system works. We can't see those processes from Earth, or even from space. Parker Solar Probe is our first direct encounter with a star. Our sun is the only star we can visit, which means this mission will gather important information about how stars work everywhere. That's information we can only get by going straight to the source. Some journeys are harder than others. Some destinations are further, higher, hotter. But the only way to explore a new destination is to actually make the journey. Parker Solar Probe. This is space time. Still to come. Drawing violence on the sun as we move into solar cycle 25 and discovery of one of the Milky Way's oldest stars. All that and more still to come on Space Time. The sun has begun displaying its anger, with a whole string of powerful solar flares blasting intense radiation into space through a series of violent eruptions. Over the past week, the sun has launched at least three powerful X-class solar flares, each from a different pair of sunspots. Solar flares are caused when loops of magnetic energy from deep inside the sun break the surface, causing sunspots. The magnetic fields dampen the temperature in the area where the fields are breaking through the surface. So, instead of an average 6,000 degree surface temperature, the area of the sunspots is only 3,000 degrees and consequently looks darker than the surrounding material. These magnetic loops extend deep out into space where they can snap in the process triggering a solar flare which releases an intense burst of electromagnetic radiation. More violent events, known as coronal mass ejections, also drag out vast amounts of plasma material, flinging it off into space. And if these blasts just happen to be aimed towards the Earth, they cause geomagnetic storms or space weather events. 
These solar storms can damage spacecraft, disrupt communications and navigation systems, black out terrestrial power grids by overloading circuits, and increase radiation dose levels for astronauts and people in high-flying aircraft. Solar flares are categorized by size into groups, such as A, B, or C class, with more powerful events categorized as M-class flares, and the most powerful and dangerous of all are categorized as X-class solar flares. Each class also includes a number from 1 to 10. Now the latest blast originated from a pair of sunspots catalogued as AR3186, which is slowly starting to rotate towards the Earth. They triggered an X1.09 class solar flare, relatively weak but still powerful enough to ionize the thermosphere, the upper layer of the Earth's atmosphere, in the process triggering a shortwave radio blackout which affected much of the South Pacific. NASA's Solar Dynamics Observatory recorded the massive blast on January the 10th as it hurtled a vast plume of radiation into space, eventually slamming into Earth's ionosphere. Just five days earlier, the Solar Dynamics Observatory recorded an even more powerful X1.2 class flare. That was preceded by a powerful explosion which rocked the far side of the Sun a few days earlier, hurling a bright coronal mass ejection over the edge of the Sun's limb. Scientists estimate this may also have been an X-class event. Helioseismic echoes suggest that the source of this blast was just behind the Sun's southeastern limb. All this increase in solar activity is a sign that the Sun is waking up. It's come out of its long dormancy of solar cycle 24, and it's moved into a far more active solar cycle 25, which is predicted to reach its peak in about two to three years' time. It should make for some interesting viewing. This is space time. Still to come, discovery of one of the Milky Way's oldest stars. And later in the science report, researchers are using magic mushrooms as a treatment for depression. All that and more still to come on space time. A new spectroscopic analysis of one of the Milky Way's ancient halo stars has confirmed that it's a rare population 2 star, well over 10 billion years old, and one of the oldest stars in the universe. Population 2 stars are important because they're thought to have been produced directly out of the material from which the very first stars had formed. The findings reported in the journal Astronomy and Astrophysics indicate that the star, catalogued as SMSS1605-1443, contains a ratio of carbon-12 to carbon-13, which suggests that it was created directly out of its population-3 forebears. The relative proportions of these two isotopes shows that the star's internal processes haven't changed its primordial composition. In consequence, these stars have a low iron content, but high carbon content generated in the interiors of the very first massive stars. It's sort of like having a pristine sample of the medium in which a star was formed more than 10 billion years ago. And that medium was created by the universe's first stars, which are known as Population 3 stars. Population 3 stars were unique because they were produced directly out of the original hydrogen and helium produced in the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago. Because they were formed with virtually no metallicity, they're thought to have been very different in their properties compared to stars today. 
For a start, they were massive, hundreds if not thousands of times more massive than, say, our sun. And they were extremely hot and luminous, flooding the universe with ionised radiation. Astronomers call all elements other than hydrogen and helium metals. That's because they're manufactured by stars either during their lifetimes or when they die. Population 3 stars were important because they literally brought the first light to the universe. They ended the cosmic dark ages and they brought about the epoch of reionization, flooding the universe with ultraviolet radiation and in the process making it transparent, thereby creating the cosmos which we see around us today. SMSS 1605-1443 and stars like it are known as Population 2 stars because their second-generation stars produced out of the ashes of those original Population 3 stars, which exploded in spectacular supernova events at the ends of their lives. Being so massive, Population 3 stars all had very short lifespans, living for no more than maybe one or two million years. And so the only way we can study them is by looking at their children, the Population 2 stars. But a lot of these stars are now also gone, so the hunt is on to try and find the remaining ones. They're living fossils, containing a chemical composition which is providing clues about the very first stages of the universe's evolution. All other stars in the universe, including our Sun, are known as Population 1 stars and have higher levels of other elements and so increased metallicity. SMSS 1605-1443 was discovered in 2018 and identified as one of the oldest stars in the galaxy by its chemical composition, but its underlying nature wasn't fully understood. Now, thanks to the combined efforts of astronomers using the Espresso Spectrograph mounted on the European Southern Observatory's VLT, or Very Large Telescope, in Chile, the origin of this jewel of stellar archaeology has been fully revealed. The study's lead author, David Agato, from the University of Florence, says he was surprised to discover that it was part of a binary star system. It's surprising because not many stars disorder in binary systems. The espresso instrument's high precision revealed small variations in the velocity of the star, confirming the presence of another yet-to-be-seen companion star in the system. Of course, it's not the only contender for the Milky Way's oldest star. The favourite is still HD 14283, also known as the Methuselah star. It's a metal poor subgiant, only about 190 light-years away, in the constellation Libra, right near the boundary with Ophiuchus. A study in 2013, using the Hubble Space Telescope to measure precise parallax, and therefore distance and luminosity for the star, gave an approximate age of 14.46 billion years, plus or minus 0.8 billion years. Of course, that's older than the universe, so there are clear issues there. However, more recent models of its stellar evolution have suggested a revision of the star's age, down to 13.7 billion years, meaning it could have been formed within the first 100 million years of the universe's existence. A stunning thought. This is Space Time. And time now to take another brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with the Science Report. 
A new study shows that the world will lose between 26 and 41 percent of its total glacial mass this century, depending on today's climate change mitigation efforts. The projections reported in the journal Science show that over 80 percent of glaciers could disappear globally if investment in fossil fuels remained at current levels. Even in the best-case low-emissions scenario, where the increase in global temperatures is limited to 1.5 degrees Celsius relative to pre-industrial levels, over 25% of glacial mass will still be gone and nearly 50% of glaciers by numbers are projected to disappear. Smaller glacial regions, like Central Europe and Western Canada and the United States, will be disproportionately affected by temperatures rising more than 2 degrees. And at 3 degrees Celsius, glaciers in these regions will disappear almost completely. There are many processes which govern how glaciers lose mass, and this new study advances different models which account for the different types of glaciers, including tidewater and debris-covered glaciers. Tidewater glaciers, for example, refer to glaciers that terminate in the ocean, and that causes them to lose a lot of mass at the interface. On the other hand, debris-covered glaciers refer to glaciers that are covered by lots of sand, rocks and boulders. Breaking bones can be a life-changing event, especially as people age. Now, a new study by scientists at Edith Cowan University has found that increasing your daily intake of vitamin K1 will help reduce your risk of bone fractures later in life. The findings, reported in the journal Food and Function, looked at the relationship between fracture-related hospitalizations and vitamin K intake in almost 1,400 older women in Perth over a 14-and-a-half-year period. The study found women who ate more than 100 micrograms of vitamin K, that's equivalent to around 125 grams or one or two serves of foods, such as dark leafy vegetables, and these can include kale, spinach, broccoli, green beans, as well as fruits, prunes, kiwi and avocado, were 31% less likely to have any fractures compared to participants who consumed less than the current guidelines of 60 micrograms per day. Vitamin K1 has also been shown to enhance cardiovascular health. The findings were independent of any established factors for fracture rates, including both body mass index, calcium intake, vitamin D status, and prevalent diseases. The largest study yet on the use of psilocybin, the active compound in magic mushrooms, for treatment-resistant depression has found that a single dose of 25 milligrams reduced the severity of depression significantly more than a 1 milligram dose over a period of three weeks. But the findings reported in the New England Journal of Medicine showed that the drug was also associated with adverse effects, including headaches, nausea and dizziness, in 77% of patients. The authors say larger, longer trials, including comparisons with existing treatments, are now required to determine the efficacy and safety of psilocybin for the disorder. The world's biggest consumer electronics show, CES 2023, has once again bedazzled Las Vegas, providing people with a glimpse of some of the biggest upcoming technological advances you can expect in the near and not-too-near future. This year's highlights included LG's new transparent OLED television, a 55-inch flat screen that you can put in front of your window and you can see right through it to the view behind. That is, until you want to actually watch TV. Then just turn it on, the view disappears, and the TV program starts. There was a new e-bike from Icoma, so compact it can be folded up and stored in a really tiny space. Yet it still has a range of 28 kilometers and a top speed of 40 kilometers per hour. 
but at 50 kilograms, you may not want to carry it up too many flights of stairs. For something lighter, you'd always try Atmos Gear's new electric-powered inline skates. And when it comes time for a pit stop, there's a gadget that you fit to your toilet bowl that checks up on your health by sampling your urine. There were cars that change colours, new generation ovens for your kitchen, the latest generation gaming pods, and exercise bikes built into your work desk. And for that person who's got to get every new gadget, how about an automatic matter-compliant button pusher? With the details of CES, we're joined by technology editor Alex Sahara-Vroit from ITY.com. Look, there were lots of things uh, on display. One of the things was a BMW that could change to virtually any color that you wanted it to. Uh, That's pretty cool. Yeah, in 2022, it was just black and white. And although it did have a range of cool patterns and things you could do, I'm sure in a few years, some of those pixels or something will go wrong. It'll look weird. But right now, obviously, it's the coolest thing. And I'm sure you'll see them on sale soon. Now, one of the things that wasn't really big at CES 2023 was 5G. Most people have a 5G phone. Most people have realized that all the promises made about 5G didn't really amount to much except sort of like a faster 4G. I mean, it has propelled a lot of sales and there's been billions of dollars worth of upgrades in phone networks. But the 5G sort of promises are yet to really emerge. And a lot of people are now saying that the true 5G promises will be delivered with 6G. There was also the launch of a bunch of devices that were connected to a standard called Matter. Now, Matter is the smart home standard that unifies the Apple, Siri, Google Assistant, and Amazon all into sort of one standard where so you can buy any gadget. Say, Google, turn the lights on in the kitchen, please. That's right, yeah. The smart home standard that uh, lets you control lots of different devices. Over the past few years, you've had to sort of be in one ecosystem, you know, Apple's, Amazon's, or Google's. And although a lot of devices, for example, were Amazon and Google compatible, or they were, you know, HomeKit compatible, the Apple compatible system, they didn't really work cross-platform. There was an issue there. And Matter was meant to be sorted out a long time ago. It got sorted out last year. There was a number of different gadgets this year at CES that were Matter compatible. And some of the gadgets that you already own that are already able to be controlled by one of the smart home ecosystems that you're plugged into will get an upgrade to just be Matter compatible so that you can use them with you know whatever device you've got, which you know if you've got an Amazon device and you've got Google devices, you can control your Google devices through your Amazon device, or you can control your Amazon devices through Google. So does this mean that Google, Amazon, and Apple can all listen to what you're saying at home? <laughs> well, uh, it really depends which ecosystem is the one that you're still you know primarily plugged into, I guess. And and also the fact is that for these devices, at least from what I've seen, you're able to actually switch off the sharing of those um, recordings. But you, know, you do have to go in and, and specify that you don't want those recordings shared. Now, we did also see HTC launch a new extended reality headset to compete with the one from Facebook. Uh, again, everyone is waiting to see what Apple is going to do. Apple will supposedly launch their headset later this year, been delayed a number of times. And in theory, what Apple does is what everyone else will you know, need to copy. Samsung did launch a bunch of uh, new TVs. They had these trifold screens that were on display at their booth, which aren't yet available to buy, but clearly is something that we'll soon see. I did see one of the videos showing that the trifold screen when folded is quite thick. <laughs> it's like three phones stuck together. So the practicality of some of these trifold displays is yet to be seen. It's certainly not as thin as seen in the uh, Westworld TV show. But, you know, these things take time to get there. Now, I understand PC shipments have taken a fall. Yes, there's uh, stats from both Canalis and IDC, and they have very similar stats. Both of them are saying around about 29% drop in... Qu- Quarter four of 2022, 
2022 and about 16% for the full year. That's numbers that equate to $285 million PC sold in total. So this is a drop from the highs of 2020 and 2021 where obviously the pandemic grew demand. But if you look at the chart, it's sort of in line with the kind of figures we were seeing in 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019. We're also now facing, of course, a recession and um, people are you know, having to make do uh, with uh, what they've got. You haven't got cash to splash around because inflation is driving the cost of everything up. And then, of course, is going to be the case with um, you know, PCs and technology. I mean, some people are saying, you know, if you need a computer, new one, get it now because in the next year or two it might be much more difficult to get. So, um, yeah, the shipments and sales have declined and that's not good news for the PC industry, but uh, we'll see what uh, happens in the first quarter of 2023. So bad news for Samsung last week. Massive problems for South Australian users of Samsung products who suddenly lost access to their phones. Where's that at now? Yes. So, yeah, Samsung, as we spoke about last week, did have an issue where a number of its devices that were upgrading to Android 13 and the Samsung One UI 5, which is Samsung skin over top of Android 13, did get stuck in a boot loop. And uh, there was a lot of concern about that. It apparently did spread to more than South Australia. It was some other states as well, but it wasn't specified which states they were. Samsung Australia did email me a statement. It says Samsung has identified a technical issue that affected a small number of customers based primarily in South Australia following the release and installation of the Android 13 update to Samsung devices that had been on Android 11. A small number of phones were locked in boot mode. A revised firmware update that will not experience this issue has been developed and will start being rolled out to customers over the coming weeks. If your device is currently locked in boot mode, please visit a Samsung service center to have your phone assessed. I mean, the fact that a lot of people didn't update from Android 11 to 12 and then went from 11 to 13 and had this problem, well, it goes to show, I guess, you know, there probably wasn't a lot of testing over at Samsung to go from uh, Android 11 devices because they probably assumed that a lot of people were already on 12. But uh, this will presumably get them to do a lot more testing because, you know, this is something that nobody can really put up with. Losing your data is a terrible thing. But, you know, one of the things that um, people People with older versions of Android that cannot upgrade anymore and are no longer getting security updates, they're going to need to update to a new phone. Most of them either come with Android 12 or 13 out of the box. And Samsung always launches new phones around this time of the year. They're going to be launching on the 1st of February in at Mobile World Congress, the Samsung Galaxy S23 range. This will be the 2nd of February in Australia at 5 a.m. Australian Eastern Daylight Time. So uh, they're saying that you know, they're going to define the ultimate premium experience. That'll obviously be with their ultra most expensive phone. And they're so they're raising the bar and setting new standards for what's epic. So uh, they're promising a lot. We will see. And if you are somebody who loves the Samsung Flip and Fold, well, the fifth generation of both those devices will be coming in about six months' time. So for those that don't care and just want the latest and greatest Samsung, that's coming in February. And for those who want uh, transforming phones, that, that's in about six months' time. That's Alex Haravroy from ITY.com. That's the show for now. Space Time is available every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday through Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, Acast, Amazon Music, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, YouTube, your favorite podcast download provider, and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. Space Time's also broadcast through the National Science Foundation on Science Zone Radio and on both iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio. 
And you can help to support our show by visiting the Spacetime store for a range of promotional merchandising goodies. Or by becoming a Spacetime patron, which gives you access to triple episode commercial-free versions of the show, as well as lots of bonus audio content which doesn't go to air, access to our exclusive Facebook group, and other rewards. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.com for full details. And if you want more space time, please check out our blog, where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as heaps of images, news stories, loads of videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at StuartGary on Twitter, at SpacetimewithStuartGary on Instagram, through our Spacetime YouTube channel, and on Facebook, just go to facebook.com forward slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. And Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 